This episode of The Thinker's Manifesto is brought to you by The Thinker's Workshop, an educational library and online community that will help you become a better thinker. Learn more at thinkers-workshop.com. That's thinkers-workshop.com. It was an unusually busy day in Lower Manhattan that Monday, September 4th. Engineers and overalls hustled from building to building along Pearl Street, carting cables and tools to a series of generators inside. Businessmen from the financial district stood around with skeptical sneers while children asked their mothers when the invention would be ready to see. The inventor, a young 35-year-old self-educated man, was huddled with his investors throughout the day, reporting on the progress made by his engineers. Finally, he received word. They were ready. And at 5 p.m. that fateful day, something miraculous happened. 400 incandescent lights turned on. For the first time in history, electricity would become commercially available to individuals and businesses alike. And every facet of that process, from the design of the generators to the wires to the light bulbs, were the creation of one man, Thomas Edison. From that day in September 1882, the growth of electrical power stations skyrocketed, with other inventors like Charles Parson and George Westinghouse contributing their work to improve on Edison's designs. No other invention in modern history comes close to the impact made by Thomas Edison at that Pearl Street location, lighting those 400 bulbs. So it's no surprise that the symbol universally associated with someone having an idea or insight is the light bulb. Welcome to Thinker's Manifesto, a podcast series that will help you think better. I'm your host, Sean Jackson. nature, there's nothing more powerful than an idea. Ideas can transform our world. They inspire us to find new ways of doing things. They can start wars or create a new religion. They can make us rich or lead us to ruin. They are the very essence of what makes us unique in nature. But for all their power, ideas like physical form. They are nothing more than electrical pulses that cascade from areas of our brain. They exist only in a metaphysical space, devoid of any tangible substance. Which begs the question, are ideas really that powerful? Or is it the actions that they inspire that actually matter more? Actions lead to real results, visible in form, tactile in feel, full of substance. So it would stand to reason, then, that actions are what make ideas powerful, right? For centuries, philosophers and fools have struggled with the question, what matters more, an idea or its execution? 
Certainly, there is a symbiotic nature between ideas and actions. You can't have one without the other. But what is more important? We would all agree that a good idea with strong execution can generate the best results. But what if you don't have either? Is a good idea poorly executed the same as a bad idea with strong execution? Does one matter more than the other? In the first season of Thinker's Manifesto, I shared with you my insights into how we generate ideas by improving the way we think. But there was something lacking from that first season, an exploration of what it takes to turn an idea into something of value. Sure, we can improve the way we think, but are better ideas enough? Don't we have to actually do something with those ideas if they are going to have real impact in our life? In this season, we will explore this concept of ideas versus actions through the story of what we did with just one idea, which was sparked by that first season of The Thinker's Manifesto. Our story will reveal some important lessons we learned along the way, including how we recovered from a near-fatal decision early on. And at the end of this season, we will give you our answer to that eternal question of what matters more, an idea or its execution. The answer we found will surprise you. Episode 8, An Idea That Started a Journey. In the summer of 2018, I found myself at a major crossroads in my life. For several months, I had been actively engaged in selling a technology business I would helped co-found eight years earlier. While this was a major financial event for me, it also meant that I would soon find myself unemployed and without a source of income. Yes, I would have some money in my bank account, but I still had a long time to go before I could even consider retiring especially with two children heading to college in the next few years. So as this business sale was coming towards its conclusion, I felt a sense of elation and then sudden panic. What was I going to do next? As an entrepreneur for all my life, I don't really fit into most corporate environments. And quite frankly, there are not a lot of businesses looking to hire a 51-year-old software executive. So finding a job was pretty much out of the question. And while I have founded and sold several technology businesses in the past, creating a new startup in this stage of life lacked the appeal it held in my youth. Probably because I knew the incredible effort it would take to get it off the ground and make it successful. So as I often do, I was sitting at my computer contemplating what my next business would be. I would spend hours sketching out ideas in a notebook and then even more hours researching the internet to see if anyone was pursuing them. And to my frustration, every idea I contemplated had already been pursued by someone else in ways that were often superior to my initial thoughts. This cycle repeated itself over and over, writing down ideas on notepads and notebooks, researching them on the internet, and shaking my head in frustration. And then it hit me, or to be more specific, it hit the wall because I threw it. The notebook, that is. 
Let me back up a second. For years, I had been collecting an assortment of notebooks and notepads, all readily available at my desk for whatever notes I needed to take. But here's the thing. I don't really like the way notebooks are designed. First, most of them are too small. And second, the common book-style orientation is not conducive for sketching out ideas. So after another one of my cycles of writing and researching that resulted in inevitable frustration, I had finally had it with that stupid notebook I was using and hurled it across the room. I thought, why can't someone make a notebook that I can actually use? And of course, that is when it hit me. Why not just make a better notebook? Now, to be fair, this was not the first time I hurled my notebook in anger or contemplated creating a better one. It was not a eureka moment as immortalized by Archimedes and his bathtub. You see, most ideas require a lot of time to evolve into something meaningful. In his groundbreaking book, Where Good Ideas Come From, Stephen Johnson postulates that good ideas can take years to develop into something useful and are the byproduct of a collision of hunches formulated over time. To quote, We have a natural tendency to romanticize breakthrough innovations, imagining momentous ideas transcending their surroundings, a gifted mind somehow seeing over the detritus of old ideas and ossified tradition. But ideas are works of bricolage. They're built out of that detritus. End quote. I find this to be true from my own experience. For years, I've been thinking about solving problems using technology. After all, I'd helped build a company into a worldwide organization with hundreds of thousands of customers, due in part to a patented technology product I helped develop. But that moment of insight did not happen because of my animus towards my notebook design. It was a series of thoughts related to the way we capture notes that led me to a singular insight. Why do we write notes using pen and paper? How is that different than typing on a computer? What is the role of a phone in the ideation process? What makes a notebook good? And who cares about taking notes anyway? The answers to these and many more questions is what led me to the real insight from that violent act of throwing my notebook. Because in those answers, I found the genesis of an idea I could create a business around. The question is whether I had the courage to make that idea real. Starting a new business involves a lot of risk. When you are young, you can afford the risk. After all, you have many years to recover from your failures and use them as a learning point in your growth. But when you're over 50, that business risk is more acute. You have a life you have built, savings you have collected, responsibilities to your family and community. And if you fail, recovery can be a lot harder emotionally and financially. So why take the risk? Well, it turns out starting a business when you are over 50 is not as much of a risk as you would believe. In a provocative study published by Pierre Azoulay and J. Daniel Kim from the MIT Sloan School of Management, being young may not actually be such a great advantage when starting a business. 
Quote, we find that age indeed predicts success, and sharply, but in the opposite way that many observers and investors propose. The highest success rates in entrepreneurship come from founders in middle age and beyond. End quote. The researchers studied 1,700 founders of the fastest-growing new ventures in the U.S. and found that success rose dramatically with age. To quote, a 50-year-old founder is 1.8 times more likely to achieve upper-tail growth than a 30-year-old founder. End quote. Yes, I was concerned about what it would take to launch a new venture from a simple idea. I knew it was not going to be easy. And that's the point. My knowledge of the challenges I faced was based on decades of experience, and my skills were cultivated over decades that the younger me could only imagine. Or put another way, my age was not going to be a hindrance, and it might actually be an advantage when starting a business. But I still had my doubts. After all, there are other notebooks in the market similar to the one I had been contemplating notebooks that worked with an app for capturing ideas. But their approach seemed to miss key elements that I felt were important. Yes, they had successful launches for their products, but their apps did not do much more than capture pages from a notebook. So maybe, instead of being a notebook company with an app, I could create an app company that had a notebook. And maybe... I could create something more than just a company, a brand that would help people think better through the tools and education we could provide. Now that is an idea. The question was, could I pull it off? In the next episode of the Thinker's Manifesto, I will share with you the secret ingredient that every idea must have and how that one thing can turn an idea into a movement that changes the world. I hope you will listen in. It was a frustrating night for the two brothers. Like many in their village, they were fishermen, mining the sea for a catch that would help feed them and their families. They had spent the previous night on their fishing boat. After bringing their boats to shore in the morning, they joined their crew to clean their nets, with no fish to show for their effort. As they worked on their nets, the younger brother, Andreas, recognized a holy man walking through the village. Now, holy men were frequent in their country, so the appearance of one in their village would not have been that unusual. But Andreas recognized this holy man, having heard about him before, and he knew there was something special about him. Andreas wanted to talk to him. So he turned to his brother Simeon, excitedly introducing him to this special man. It turned out the holy man needed their help. He was to preach that day to a crowd and needed a boat so he could be on the lake and seen by those on the shore. He asked Simeon if he could use his boat. 
and Simeon agreed. Later, after the sermon was done, the holy man asked them to go fishing. The brothers were reluctant. After all, the previous night had resulted in empty nets. But he implored them, and they complied. Miraculously, they hauled in so many fish that their boat nearly sank. Dumbstruck by the miracle of this bounty, the holy man turned to them and said, quote, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. End quote. Christians know this story well. It is the story of Jesus calling the first disciples, the two brothers whose Greek names are translated to Andrew and Simon Peter. And while Simon Peter would go on to become one of the most prominent apostles of Jesus, it is important to remember that it was Andrew who introduced Simon Peter to Jesus, an act that would have him forever referenced in the Orthodox Christian tradition as the Protokletos, the first called. But I wonder, what would have happened if Andrew never called for his brother Peter to come and meet Jesus? How would Christianity have changed? And would there even be a Christian religion to talk about? Welcome to Thinker's Manifesto, a podcast series that will help you think better. I'm your host, Sean Jackson. The role of the first follower is often glossed over in the accounts of famous leaders. Yes, these first followers may share the spotlight, but rarely do we appreciate the important role these first followers play in helping spread an idea. It is one thing to create an idea, but for that idea to spread, it needs someone to hear it and be inspired enough to follow it. This is actually a rare occurrence. How many times have you heard a great idea and given up everything you were doing to follow it? But the act of following is a requirement for any idea to gain traction. It's one thing for you to believe in your idea, but it takes on a whole new dimension when others follow that idea with you. As the best-selling author and pastor John C. Maxwell states, quote, He who thinks he leads but has no followers is only taking a walk, end quote. On that day on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus was taking a walk. But that changed when Andrew saw him and implored his brother to come follow him. The ideas of Jesus found devoted followers, and it was those followers who were known as the apostles who spread the idea of Christianity. So how does an idea attract followers? Episode 9, The Value of the First Follower. In a fascinating TED Talk by Derek Sivers, he shares a video of an outdoor concert. 
In the video, you see a lone man dressed only in shorts, comically gyrating and gestating to the music. The crowd looks on in amusement. But then something amazing happens. Another person from the crowd comes and joins the man and begins mimicking his dance moves. A few seconds later, another joins them, and then a few more, and then even more. In less than three minutes, this lone dancer had inspired almost a hundred people to come and join him in his comical gyrations of dance. It is a stunning video. Derek Sivers provides compelling narration for the video, dissecting the nuances of the event. On the role of the first follower, Derek points out two critical qualities needed to attract the first follower. First, the idea needs to be easy to follow. Second, the first follower is embraced as an equal. I think these are important points, but there is a third quality that is not discussed, a quality I would come to appreciate after a very painful experience. In 2018, as I worked to improve on my ideas for starting a company, I found myself spending an increasing amount of time with my good friend, Sam. I've known Sam for many years and came to admire him. He owned a business that produced corporate events around the world, and he told mesmerizing stories of the extravagant events he held in numerous exotic locations. Sam is creative, insightful, and an experienced business owner. So I approached him about joining me and turning my idea into a company. At first, he was reluctant. But realizing what I was proposing was unique, he agreed to be my partner. For several months, we worked together to bring the idea forward. But something happened along the way. We both had strong opinions about what this idea could become, and they were not aligned. He saw it as something he could sell to his corporate clients for events. I saw it as something more. Over time, those differences manifested into major disagreements on every aspect of the business, from the logo, to the design, to the pricing. What I failed to realize is that Sam was not following along with my vision. He had his own vision of what he wanted to achieve. In less than six months, we mutually agreed to go our separate ways. It was a painful time for me. I felt sad that someone I admired could not continue with me on the journey we had started together. But there was no way we could reconcile on the one quality that matters most when finding a follower for an idea. Values. Values are beliefs that we hold worthwhile. Values guide our actions and motivate our attitudes. Values are personal or organizational qualities that we believe are important in our interactions with others. And what I came to find is that Sam and I did not share the same values. That is not to say one set of values is better than the other. It was just that our values were not aligned. And when it comes to following an idea, values matter. Around the time Sam and I were parting ways, I started to write season one of The Thinker's Manifesto. I wanted it to be something special, a podcast that people would enjoy listening to. So I reached out to the one person I knew was an expert in creating a great podcast. 
Advertisers and the media love to agitate your amygdala by mm. barraging. What? Let's do that one again. What? Do it again. What amygdala. Mean? You messed up amygdala. Just okay. go back to the start of the line, though. That is Jared Morse. Amygdala. Jared and I had worked together in the previous company I had started. He worked in marketing and had become a prolific and highly respected copywriter. But Jared is an exceptional podcaster. He has hosted numerous popular shows and even trained others on how to do podcasts through his educational course at showrunner.fm. If anyone could help me make this podcast work well, it was Jared. Yeah, I was intrigued from the very start. I mean, I've always been interested in topics related to self-improvement and specifically to thinking better, making better decisions. And, you know, as a podcaster, there's no better way to explain those concepts than through stories, which is what Sean's vision for the Thinker's Manifesto was. So I was in. I was excited to be a part of it from the get-go. We had a lot of fun working together on that first season. But there was something more. Jared really liked the ideas I was talking about. Yeah, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to toss out ideas about thinking better because it's something that we all do every day. So it's something that we kind of feel like we have an intuitive sense for how to do better. But it's like anything else. When you start digging into the research and into the science, you start figuring out the stuff that really moves the needle. And you start reading the ideas of smart people who explain it in a way that make abstract concepts make sense. An example of this being Daniel Kahneman's uh, ideas for separating our two types of thinking, which we talked about you know, way back in episode one of The Thinker's Manifesto. And Sean's metaphor for emotional circuit breakers. I just, I wanted to learn more and I was just really, really getting into it. I eventually came to share my vision and ideas with Jared on the type of company I wanted to create. He understood immediately where this idea could lead. And we knew we could work well together. But there was one thing I had to find out. Did we share the same values? All right, so here's the thing about Sean, all right? Sean is an incredibly enthusiastic and energetic guy and sometimes pretty hard-charging and intense when it comes to working toward goals. But I had worked with him before, and so I knew that Sean's intensity was really a byproduct of his desire to help. He wants to help. And I really connect with that because I feel the same way. And that's really what I started to feel as we discussed his ideas more and more, Yes, he had this vision for a successful business model, but I could tell that what really got him excited and jazzed up about this was the prospect of taking these ideas about becoming a better thinker that he had been researching for the podcast and finding practical ways to actually impact people with them, whether through education like the podcast or tools like an app and a notebook. Sean really was talking about what we could build in terms of how it could help and serve other people. And that's a style of leadership that has always just really resonated with me. Servant leadership is a concept popularized by Robert K. Greenleaf in his 1970 essay, The Servant as a Leader, where a leader puts the needs of others in the organization first while helping them develop and perform better. On a personal level, it is a value I hold dearly. Unfortunately, I have worked with others that did not embrace the concept and it caused a lot of problems. So when I found someone who shared in a value I held in such high regard, a value that I wanted to instill in the company I was building, I knew that I had found a follower 
that I can embrace as an equal. It can be kind of tricky sometimes stepping into someone else's vision, which is what I was doing. Founders can be pretty protective of their ideas and their plans. And Sean is protective in the sense that he'll put in whatever effort is necessary to succeed, but he is not protective in the sense of needing to be right. And he let me know early on that he wanted my input and that he valued it, especially where we disagreed. I wasn't here to be a yes man. I was here to think critically so that we could challenge each other's ideas, point out cognitive biases, and find the best paths forward. And that's what we do. Practicing intellectual humility has become a major foundation of our work together, but it only really works because Sean sets the tone that way. I was fortunate that I could find someone who believed in my idea. But finding people that have faith in what you are doing is not enough. Embracing a first follower as an equal can only work well when you share the same values. And it is those values that will help guide you through the difficult times ahead as you start to put actions around them. In the next episode of The Thinker's Manifesto, I will share with you the story of a decision that I made that nearly killed off my idea before it even had a chance to grow. If failure is a teacher, then Jared and I received a Ph.D. education. I hope you will listen in. It was the fall of 1982 and Ray Dalio was on top of the world. At the age of 33, this hedge fund trader was the toast of Wall Street. For eight years, his investment firm had seen success by trading on investment trends Ray had spotted. He had accurately predicted that emerging market bank debt was at risk, a prediction that came true in August when Mexico defaulted. By November of 1982, he had another bold prediction. One he made on the most important financial news program at the time. The world economy was headed towards an economic depression. Except that's not what happened. Months prior to his prediction, fiscal and monetary policy actions by the U.S. had laid the seeds of what would eventually become an 18-year growth market. And while the U.S. economy was not heading towards an economic depression, Ray's business was. Ray's arrogance and overconfidence led him to make investment decisions that lost money. Clients pulled their investments as his losses mounted. With his investments and most of his investors gone, Ray had no choice but to lay off his employees. But it would not stop there. Things became so dire that he even had to borrow $4,000 from his father just to pay his bills. Summing up this period of his life, Ray would later say, quote, My experience over this period was like a series of blows to the head with a baseball bat. Being so wrong, and especially so publicly wrong, was incredibly humbling and cost me just about everything I had built at Bridgewater. End quote. How would you have reacted to a failure of this magnitude? Would you give up and go find a job? Or would you stay with it, knowing the risk for you your wife, and your children. 
What would you do when your ideas and your actions lead to failure? Welcome to Thinker's Manifesto, a podcast series that will help you think better. I'm your host, Sean Jackson. Ray Dalio is one of the most influential investors in the world. From those dark days in the early 80s, Ray would go on to build Bridgewater and Associates from the ashes of his actions into the largest hedge fund in the world. In turn, Ray became a self-made billionaire, number 25 on the Forbes 400 list. I'm a big fan of Ray and featured him in episode six of our first season. The reason I admire him is exactly because of how he dealt with his failure back in the 1980s. How we deal with failure says a lot about us. Failure is painful. It leads us to doubt our capabilities, our ideas, our work. Failures can take a huge toll on us financially, emotionally, and psychologically. And while success releases testosterone and dopamine into our system, failure has an entirely different effect, one that is purely psychological. But if you're going to be successful at anything you do, failure is inevitable, which means that being able to handle failure is, ironically, a prerequisite for success. In a research paper from Northwestern University titled, Quantifying the Dynamics of Failure in Science, Startups, and Security, the authors reviewed hundreds of thousands of scientific grant applications, venture investments, and terrorist attacks to see if they could find a statistical model to predict success and failure. Their conclusion, to quote the head of the study, Dashun Wang, every winner begins as a loser, but not every failure leads to success, end quote. Failure is a rite of passage that you must go through before you find success. It's the reason why so many successful people often wax poetically about the importance of failure in their journey. Not because they remember their failures fondly, but because their failures set them up for success. As Johnny Cash once said, quote, You build on failure. You use it as a stepping stone. Close the door on the past. You don't try to forget the mistakes, but you don't dwell on it. Don't let it have any of your energy or any of your time or any of your space. End quote. What Johnny Cash alludes to in this quote is also backed up by the research from Northwestern University cited earlier. A key finding in their study is that one of the key indicators for success is how quickly you change what doesn't work and try again. In other words, the faster you fail, the higher your probability for success in the future. Little did Jared and I appreciate how important this insight would be as we work to launch our idea in early 2019. Episode 10, Failure. I was very confident on the morning of February 19th, 2019. I had just launched our Kickstarter campaign for the Thinker's Notebook. For months, I had been planning for this moment, and when it arrived, I felt elated. I just knew this campaign was going to be a success. 
all I was wondering was how big it would be. Would it be $80,000 or $150,000 in pledges? My thoughts drifted to the bigger number. Kickstarter is a crowdfunding site for new product ideas. The premise is simple. Creators post their product ideas on the site, and backers can support the development of that product through a financial contribution, usually with the promise of being one of the first to obtain the product. In researching my ideas for the Thinker's Notebook, I came across numerous examples of other notebooks being launched on this site, usually with hundreds of thousands of dollars pledged by backers. One competitor raised over $1 million on Kickstarter. Based on their success and many others, I made the decision to launch our idea on the platform. And I was not alone in my confidence. My partner Jared Moore shared in my enthusiasm. Yeah, I mean, at this point, going on Kickstarter is a well-worn path, especially for unique consumer goods like what we were developing with the Thinker's Notebook. You get some snazzy photos, you create a compelling video, and you tell a good story with your written copy. Then you get the word out, and you watch the pledges come flying in. I'd been a backer on many Kickstarter campaigns myself, and I was really, really looking forward to succeeding being on the entrepreneur end of it. Our shared enthusiasm was based on our belief that we had an amazing product. The notebook would be available in red or blue with your name laser cut on the cover. The interior featured a meticulously designed layout with dot grids, lines, and a task list combined on one sheet. And of course, it would be bound using disc binding, which I had come to appreciate for its flexibility and stylish appearance. If any notebook product was going to be a huge success on Kickstarter, our highly personalized design would be it. But there was one issue I had to address. Most of the successful campaigns on Kickstarter already had relationships with backers, people who had familiarity with the concept and the creators prior to their launch. This was a problem. We had not built an online audience via a blog or a newsletter. Only a handful of people knew what we were working on. But in my hubris, I did not think that would be a problem. I knew a lot of online influencers who would help me spread the word online. I had a relationship with a large blog site that had a substantial email list. Further, I had money to spend. I hired one of the top Kickstarter marketing companies to help create a video for the project, create the ads, and provide PR. They weren't cheap, but I knew they would generate results. So on that February morning, I was ready. Influencers were lined up, emails were set to go, ads and PR ready to fire. And it worked. We started seeing pledges. But it was at a much slower pace than I expected. I reviewed the analytics to see if the data could shed some light. I reached out to more people. I ran my own ads. Anything to drive traffic to that campaign. And people did respond. They came. They watched our expensive video. But as the influx of pledges over the next two weeks continued to be slow, I came to a painful realization. There was no way we were going to hit our target, which, in Kickstarter parlance, is the bare minimum we needed to raise in pledges to launch the product we had envisioned. I was devastated. Depression hit me like a punch to the stomach. Doubt and self-loathing filled my mind. And I wasn't the only one. My partner Jared shared in those feelings. I mean, look, it was a major disappointment. There's no question about it. We put a lot into the Kickstarter campaign. 
And to see it flop like that was a major reality check. I mean, you know, personally, I had really built up the potential for the Kickstarter campaign with my wife, who was being very patient with me while I pursued this new venture with Sean. And so, you know, obviously admitting to her that it hadn't come close to our expectations, that, uh, that was not fun. My depression over this failure escalated. So acute was my negativity that I did not join my family on our spring break vacation, opting instead to stay home to consider what to do next. And just when I thought things could not get worse psychologically for me, they did. As my family was away on their vacation, I opted to go to a movie, something I do as an emotional circuit breaker. Walking to my car late at night, I noticed a sports car that had crashed next to my SUV. As I got closer, I noticed something on the ground. I thought someone had hit a dog, but as I got closer, I realized that it was something horribly different. A body laid lifeless on the ground with blood everywhere. A second body lay 20 feet away, and the driver was sitting motionless in the car. I have never witnessed a scene as horrific as the one I encountered that night. After the first responders arrived, I retreated to my empty home, shaken to my core. I had just turned 52, and my spirit was broken. My dreams of a successful Kickstarter campaign had evaporated. My mortality filled me with dread. I had come to a crossroad in my life. Should I abandon my idea and pursue something else? I didn't have an answer. All I knew was that life was precious. And for whatever time I had left, the decisions I made going forward would be some of the most important I had ever made. In the next episode of Thinker's Manifesto, I will share with you the key insights Jared and I discovered as we examine what went wrong with the Kickstarter campaign, a discovery that became the cornerstone of our idea and a new path forward. I hope you will listen in. I'd like to share an old joke with you. One day, a salesman knocked on the door of a brand new house. A lady answered the door. Ma'am, the salesman announced, I am here to sell you the latest invention in vacuums. This is the greatest vacuum you will ever own, and I can prove it. Just then, the salesman dumped a vile and smelly concoction of garbage on the floor. He continued, Ma'am, If this vacuum doesn't suck up all this mess, I will eat it. The lady smiled and replied, Well, I hope you brought a spoon, because the electricity for our new house hasn't been turned on. When people of a certain age think of door-to-door salespeople, the image of a vacuum salesman probably comes to mind. Throughout the late 20th century, salesmen from major brands like Kirby, Hoover, and Electrolux traveled the country, knocking on doors to demonstrate and sell their vacuum cleaners. Some still do today. And as any salesman will tell you, 
Selling a vacuum is not easy, especially one that is so different from what most people are familiar with. It's an experience that James, a British inventor, knew all too well. In 1978, James started to work on a revolutionary new vacuum design. He spent the next five years developing thousands of prototypes, while his wife taught art to support their family. When he finally perfected his design and was ready to start selling it, the reception to his invention was less than enthusiastic. Manufacturers didn't want the design, and a licensing deal with Amway was a disaster. So James mortgaged his house and started to manufacture his invention on his own. He got a few sales through catalogs, but it was a grind. He was just another vacuum salesman hawking his wares. But he never gave up. And in 1995, 17 years after he first started working on his vacuum design, James got a break. A major retailer in the United Kingdom agreed to start selling his invention. Within a year, the Dyson vacuum would become the best-selling vacuum cleaner in Britain. And by 2005, the Dyson vacuum would become the market leader by value in the U.S. Today, the company James Dyson founded has sold his machines in over 65 countries and employs more than 1,000 engineers worldwide. It has made him a multi-billionaire. James reflected on his early days in an interview in Fast Company magazine in 2007. Here's what he said about his early failures. Quote, I made 5,127 prototypes of my vacuum before I got it right. There were 5,126 failures, but I learned from each one. That's how I came up with a solution. So I don't mind failure. I've always thought that school children should be marked by the number of failures they've had. The child who tries strange things and experiences lots of failures to get there is probably more creative. End quote. How do you view your failures? And more importantly, what does it take for you to keep going so that you can overcome failure and turn your idea into a success? Welcome to Thinker's Manifesto a podcast series that will help you think better. I'm your host, Sean Jackson. Most successful people have a failure story they like to share. They can talk poetically about the struggles they encountered and how they overcame them. They take great pride in proclaiming that they never gave up in pursuit of their goals. They talk about the values they learned from their failures that helped them achieve their success. It all sounds so inspiring, doesn't it? Except there's more to the story. Namely, the twist of fate, or what we call luck, that put them into positions that allowed them to grow past their failures. You see, for every success story you hear, there are thousands of other people in similar situations that did not find success. Their failures had no twist of fate that helped them towards their goals. Here's what Mark Cuban, 
a self-made billionaire and TV personality, stated about his own success. Quote, I can remember vividly people telling me how lucky I was to sell my business at the right time. Of course, no one wanted to comment on how lucky I was to spend time reading software manuals or Cisco router manuals or sitting in my house testing and comparing new technologies. He continues, quote, you have to work hard and try to put yourself in a position where if luck strikes, you can see the opportunity and take advantage of it, end quote. As you pursue your ideas and start to turn them into something more, you will fail along the way. Failure is a key ingredient of success. But just because you fail does not mean you will be successful. It is how you deal with failure that matters. In the last episode, I referenced a research paper about failure from Northwestern University. In it, the authors reviewed hundreds of thousands of scientific grant applications, venture investments, and terrorist attacks to see if they could find a statistical model to predict success and failure. And there was one key observation they found about the characteristics of those who succeeded versus those who failed. Dashun Wang, the head of the study, explained this observation in an article in Fast Company. Quote, If we look at the human dynamic, there are two basic ways of thinking about why you fail. A chance model and a learning model. We quickly realize that these simple models don't offer the answer. It turns out to be a very complex prediction. End quote. What he and his researchers discovered was that success came from incorporating what is learned from failure and failing again, over and over and over, and doing so quickly. Wayne continued, quote, If you're not failing faster and faster, you're in stagnation region and not gaining enough feedback to form intelligent improvement. End quote. The researchers make a strong point, and so does Mark Cuban. Learning from your failures is crucial for success if you incorporate the insights from those failures into your next iteration and then try again and again and again. If so, then maybe one day you will be in a position to capitalize on the opportunities luck brings your way. But remember, just because you follow that formula doesn't mean your idea or effort is guaranteed to succeed. There are hundreds of people just like you in pursuit of an idea just like yours that will never find success. So what do you do when you fail? Do you give up or do you keep going? Knowing that even if you do everything right, success is not guaranteed. It is a question that I found myself facing after the failure of our Kickstarter campaign. Episode 11, Learning from Failure. In March of 2019, Jared and I faced a choice. How would we proceed from the failure of our Kickstarter launch? A story I shared in the previous episode. What would we do next? Would we give up? Or would we learn from our failure and keep going? We gave it a lot of thought. Frankly, there were compelling arguments for both choices. In fact, there were more compelling arguments to give up than to proceed. 
Continuing on meant we would have to analyze our entire approach, from the product design to its execution. We'd have to gather a lot more data and do a lot more work just to get this idea off the ground. Sure, we could do consulting work, using our experiences to benefit others, and make a lot of money doing it. But there was one thing I could not reconcile. How would I explain to my children that I gave up at the first sign of failure? What was the example I would set for them by so quickly discarding my goals just because I failed in my first attempt? Is that really what I wanted them to learn from my effort? The answer was no. I often tell my children that life is hard, that it's not fair, and that to be successful at anything requires persistence and the desire to be better. If I quit, I knew that my words would not match my actions, and I could not live with the hypocrisy of that choice. So I decided to continue on, and thankfully, Jared agreed to continue on as well. So we made our choice. Question was, what should we do next? As we closed the Kickstarter campaign, we let the 149 backers know of our plans to continue on. But to be fair, we didn't really have a plan, at least not yet. We just knew we would take what we had learned and continued on. And as we considered our options, we identified a glaring hole in our business. One that my business partner, Jared Morse, understood well. I mean, look, we hadn't even built authority yet. We hadn't built trust with our target audience. We had this great notebook and app, and we knew how well it would work, but we were expecting people to take our word for it before they even knew who we were. You know, Sean and I both come from a content marketing background, and that's just not how online commerce works, at least not for any type of sustained success. So we had to go back to square one and invest the time and effort to get our target audience to know us, to like us, and to trust us. That was the path to creating meaningful customer relationships and building an actual business around our ideas. What we realized is that the people that we wanted to attract were actually a very discriminating audience. Just because we thought we had a product to help them think better didn't mean they believed us. And hey, you know, this process of building authority isn't a one-way street. Because at the same time our audience was learning about us, we learned more about them. And what we learned is that there is a difference between someone who thinks and a thinker. We all think, we do it all the time, but only a subset of us really desire to think better and invest the time and resources to make it happen, like buying a premium notebook or exploring ideas with pen and paper. And we weren't just going to win the hearts and minds of these highly discerning thinkers casually. We'd have to work for it. So that's exactly what we started to do. We had produced the first season of Thinker's Manifesto to share our ideas about how to think better. But what we quickly realized is that just releasing the podcast was not enough. That is when Jared came up with an idea. Why not build a community of thinkers? Hey, what better way to build a relationship with a group of people and get to know them better than by organizing them into a community of like-minded folks who are all pursuing the same goal? I felt confident that if we created something valuable, a place where thoughtful people congregated together, where they also had a library of educational materials to ruminate on and use to improve their thinking, that we'd accelerate the process of building the authority that we needed with this audience to become a trusted source of tools and advice for better thinking. 
And, you know, while there have been some twists and turns, inevitably, overall, that's exactly what has happened. Given our successful experience in content marketing and building communities for our previous company, I immediately recognized the value in Jared's idea. Creating an online community is a powerful way to build an audience for a product or service. It also requires a lot of work. We spent that spring and summer writing and producing a series of videos we could post in our online community. We created workshops on how to deal with a crisis and developing skills and habits for better thinking, to name just a few. All of this effort so we could have something for our audience to consume and use to become better thinkers. And we felt the effort would pay off by creating the kind of trust we needed to ultimately convince these people to become our customers. And this wasn't the only thing we were working on. Based on input from our backers, we worked to redesign our notebook concept to lower the cost while simplifying the design. We also spent weeks considering the Thinkers app, mapping out the future of our technology stack while knowing that our first version was just the beginning of a new type of technology we wanted to create. Finally, by the early fall of 2019, we were ready. Our notebook order was delivered by the manufacturer. Our first version of the app was completed, and our online community, the Thinker's Workshop, was open. We were ready to put our effort out once again into the market, knowing that we had a lot more failures ahead. In the next episode of Thinker's Manifesto, we'll talk about the power of the pivot and why having a strong relationship with a segment of your target market gives you the best chance pivoting in the right direction. I hope you will listen in. On a remote island, an epic battle was being waged. Villagers, whose homes were destroyed and children taken, are setting siege to the castle of their enemy. Standing before the walls of the castle, the villagers are frustrated. Every attempt to breach the walls of the castle leads to failure. Finally, they develop a plan. They decide to propel themselves over the wall using a slingshot this sounds familiar, then you probably have children. It is a storyline from the movie Angry Birds, a box office success that grossed over $352 million worldwide. But Angry Birds didn't start as a movie concept. It was actually a sideline gaming project for a struggling Finnish-based company called Rovio. In 2009, Rovio was in dire straits. What started as a promising game company in 2003 was struggling to pay its bills. It had created 51 games with a few successes, but nothing substantial. But their 52nd game would prove different than the rest. It started as a hobby by a few of the developers, but eventually morphed into a small production project. It was originally designed to be played on an iPhone with angry birds trying to retrieve their eggs from green pigs. The birds would fling themselves through the air using a slingshot to knock the pigs off their pedestals. The game was addictive to play. 
but it was not an immediate success in the U.S. and U.K. when it launched in December 2009. So the founders focused on launching their game on the Apple app stores and other countries, like Sweden, Denmark, Greece, the Czech Republic, and even their home country of Finland. This decision was pivotal. It allowed them to build a following in less competitive markets, where they could hit number one in the app store for those countries and build market momentum. And by February 2010, their efforts paid off. The game was featured in the UK App Store, and over three days rose from number 600 in the game category to number one. By April 2010, Angry Birds would become the number one paid game in the US. Eventually, Rovio would become a public company and reach a billion dollar valuation by 2017. Not a bad journey for a bunch of angry birds. But what if Rovio had not changed their approach after launching? What if they were content to just have it languish in the US and UK app stores instead of pivoting their efforts? Welcome to Thinker's Manifesto, a podcast series that will help you think better. I'm your host, Sean Jackson. term that a lot of startup companies know well. A pivot is a shift in business strategy that involves changing a company's products or business model based on feedback from the market. A lot of companies have conducted a successful pivot. Odeo was a podcasting platform that pivoted to become Twitter. The social fundraising site called The Point pivoted to become Groupon. And a check-in app with gaming elements called Bourbon eventually pivoted to become Instagram. But not all pivots require changing a product. Sometimes it requires you change your approach to a market. Episode 12, Pivoting to Meet the Right Customers. In the book, Crossing the Chasm, Jeffrey Moore explores the way that technology products are adopted by different groups of people at different stages of the adoption life cycle. What he discovered in his research is there is a chasm of expectations between the early adopters of a product and the early majority of users. And because of this difference, he recommends that companies focus on the needs of one group at a time in their approach to the market. This makes sense. Early adopters enjoy buying new products and will be more accepting of the higher cost and lack of complete functionality. Conversely, late adopters, what Moore calls the early and late majority, want products that are well-established and represent less risk. Hence, the marketing message that would appeal to early adopters is vastly different than the message to later adopters. Crossing the Chasm has sold more than 300,000 copies worldwide and is still considered, quote, the Bible of entrepreneurial marketing for technology startups. But I think Moore's observations transcend just tech startups. Most products go through some form of the adoption lifecycle that Moore outlines. Most companies starting out will need to focus on one specific group of early adopters and then pivot their messaging to appeal to an entirely new group of customers. In other words, a pivot is not limited to changing a company's products or business model. A pivot 
can also indicate what a company must do to attract the right customers for its products. And while changing a company's product line is difficult and risky, pivoting a market approach is not as hard, but it does require a lot of work, something Jared and I would soon discover. When we launched our first product in October 2019, Jared and I didn't really know whom our customers would be. Yes, we knew the general market size of people that could be interested in our product, but not the specifics of who they are. It's one thing to have demographic data, young or old, man or woman, but that was not enough. Who were the people that identified themselves as thinkers? To us, a thinker is an individual that actively seeks out tools and educational resources to help them on their journey towards doing more with their idea. Who were these people? You see, most companies sell you a product and then spend a ton of time and money researching the psychographic characteristics of their customer base. But this question of who is a thinker was crucial. As Moore points out in Crossing the Chasm, the first customers are visionaries and early adopters with goals and objectives that are very different from other people that purchase later in the product life cycle. Our problem is that we didn't know who they were. What do they do for a living? How do they define themselves? What attracted them to the product to begin with? Sure, we could send out surveys, and we do, but that doesn't provide the deep understanding of the motivations behind a customer's action. And we needed this insight if we were going to evolve our products to better meet their needs. Lucky for us, we have the Thinker's Workshop. As we recounted in the prior episode, after our failed Kickstarter launch, Jared and I went to work refining our notebook and creating a new online community and educational library called the Thinker's Workshop. We bundled the workshop membership with our notebook so buyers of the notebook had immediate access. And the plan worked. People would buy our notebook, download and use our app, and also join our community where they would review our video courses, participate in our virtual happy hours and webinars, and even share their thinker's journey. Over time, Jared and I got to spend time online with some of them. People like Adrian, Rob, Anne, Dan, Kathy, Steve, and John, among others. And what we found astonished us. There are some serious note-takers out in the market. People that have spent years working to improve their cognitive skills by writing with pen and paper, or who built complex mind maps using technology. These are people who read constantly and work diligently to improve their intellectual skills so they can make better decisions and achieve better outcomes. They consumed our video library of educational material. They contributed stories and articles on thinking. They used our notebook and app to help them capture and share their ideas. But more importantly, they did not fit any one type of demographic characteristic. What they had in common was a passion for using education and tools to help them think better. We had found our visionaries and early adopters. We asked them questions and they shared their insights. We tested ideas and they gave us their feedback. Basically, we had found a way to connect with people who found value in our products and believed in our brand. And this connection continues today. We are doing more online events and interviews with thought leaders. We are working to introduce quizzes and other interactive content. We are writing original articles that are only available to the community. 
And yes, it is a lot of work and consumes a lot of our time. So why do we do it? Especially since we are giving membership away for free to people that purchase our notebook. Because for our company to be successful, we have to be more than just a one-time product experience. Becoming a better thinker is a journey, and no one notebook or app has all the answers. Sure, they are important tools to assist on the journey, but what matters more, especially for a company like ours that is trying to build a long-term relationship with its customers, is the community of thinkers we can bring together who are taking the same journey. Now, of course, we want people to buy our notebook and use our app. There is a clear economic reason behind our actions. But we started this company as an idea. An idea that is bigger than just a product. An idea to help others become something more than what they could become on their own. An idea that needs a community for fellow travelers along that journey. Building an online community is hard and requires a lot of patience and persistence, often with little to no financial reward. But the role it can play in the evolution of an idea and in bringing people together around that idea is important. As your idea evolves, you will have to pivot your messaging to different audiences. And the insights you learn from having a community of people that want to be a part of your idea is invaluable makes it a lot easier to know what people want from your idea when you take the time to get to know them. In the next episode of Thinker's Manifesto, we share with you the surprising twist we encountered. Hiring good people is never easy, but getting talented people to buy into an ambitious idea, that proved a lot more difficult until we found one thing. I hope you will listen in. I bet you have watched an American football game a time or two in your life, and you probably know a decent amount about the sport. You may even be one of those people who knows the rules of the game so well that you can easily spot a penalty before the ref blows his whistle. So I want to ask you a simple question about the game. Ready? What does the quarterback say when he wants the ball snapped to him by the center? Did you say, hut, hut, hut? then you're right. But why do quarterbacks say this? Don't know? You're not alone. Joe Theismann, the former quarterback for the Washington professional football team and an All-American at Notre Dame, believes he has shouted Hutt more than 10,000 times in his career. And he doesn't know why either. To quote, I started when I was 12 years old and I've been hutting my way through football for 55 years, but I have no clue why. End quote. It turns out that hut is actually a derivative of the word hike, a term that was the brainchild of one of the most important figures in football history. You may have heard of him. In fact, they named an important trophy after him. Welcome to Thinker's Manifesto, a podcast series that will help you think better. I'm your host, Sean Jackson.
John Heisman is a coaching legend. His career spanned the 19th and 20th century, coaching football teams from Auburn University, Clemson University, Georgia Tech, and the University of Pennsylvania, to name a few. Heisman was a tireless innovator. He introduced the forward pass, divided the game into quarters, and even introduced the concept of a scoreboard. And of course, one of those innovations was having the quarterback yell the word hike to start the play. There's another innovation he created that would profoundly change the way the game was played. The audible. Heisman instructed his quarterbacks that they could change the plays he called while the quarterback was at the line of scrimmage. His rationale was simple. No coach can perfectly predict what the defense will do. So quarterbacks need the flexibility to change the play based on how the defense lines up. Today, audibles are widely used, especially in professional football. Calling an audible as a quarterback is hard. You have to quickly assess how the 11 defenders are lined up, inferring their rushing and coverage intentions from that arrangement, and then determine the best play to combat these intentions, all within seconds. Not to mention, quarterbacks take a huge risk with an audible. If the call is not communicated clearly to everyone on the offense, or the quarterback makes the wrong call, the play could end in disaster. Drives can end, games can be lost, and entire seasons can be ruined because of bad decisions at the line of scrimmage. It takes a lot of mental fortitude to be a successful professional quarterback. And it's one reason so many college standouts can't find success in the NFL. In business, especially in a startup, you will find yourself calling a lot of audibles. It's inevitable as your business plan, the offense, moves your idea down the field against the resistance of the defense. In this case, the market. Episode 13, Dealing with Change. There is a famous quote from the Prussian military commander Helmuth von Moltke, quote, no plan of operations reaches with any certainty beyond the first encounter with the enemy's main force, end quote. You may have heard this before, but in a slightly different way. No plan survives first contact with the enemy. Former heavyweight champion Mike Tyson said it even more bluntly, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Or in business, no plan survives first contact with the customer. In business school and military academies, students are encouraged to remain flexible while implementing their plans while still staying within the overall strategy. In the U.S. Marine Corps Book of Tactics, the authors actively encourage Marines to avoid overly prescriptive orders and instead find ways to combine tactics to meet the situations they encounter. Even the great business theorist Peter Drucker, who created the concepts of management by objectives and self-control, states in his 1993 book, Post-Capitalist Society, quote, unless an organization sees that its task is to lead change, that organization, whether a business, a university, or a hospital, will not survive. In a period of rapid structural change, the only organizations that survive are the change leaders. End quote. We think a lot about change in our organization, developing the skills that are required to stay nimble in our efforts and humble in our approach. 
But there is one thing about change. It's not easy. It's a struggle between managing the vision of an idea with the execution of that idea as the market sends you a continuous stream of feedback, both good and bad. And there's another thing about change that most people don't appreciate. You need the right people for change to work well. After months of working to refocus our efforts, we launched the Thinker's Notebook and app to the market on October 1st, 2019. Jared and I anxiously waited for our first sale, and thankfully, a few people purchased, and then a few more, and then even more. Things started to take shape. We found that people would buy the notebook, download and register for the app, and then join our Thinkers Workshop community, just as we had intended. And the best part? People were asking questions and sharing their opinions about the product, especially about the app. But it quickly became evident that to better meet the needs of our customers, we needed to hire some people. This was not a simple proposition. First, we needed to find people with the right technical acumen. Given the complexity of the app we wanted to build, this was not going to be easy. Second, we needed to find people who believed in our vision and mission. And finally, we needed to find people who were comfortable with change because we knew that we would need to evolve our products and processes based on our interactions with customers. So how do you find people who can meet all three criteria? For us, it started by writing down our values. Values are the beliefs that guide your actions. It is the way that individuals and organizations prioritize what is important to them. Values matter because they frame the operational context of an idea what you will or will not do to achieve an idea. And for us, finding people who aligned with our values was just as important as their technical or personal skills. So we wrote them down. Now, this was not some boring corporate mission statement. It was a story about the type of environment we sought to create and distilling those stories into an easy-to-remember acronym. Basically, we wrote about the type of company culture we wanted to have, and more specifically, the type of people we wanted in that culture. Yes, every great idea starts by writing it down. But for an idea to be adopted by others, it needs some guidepost. What is allowed and what is not? This is especially true when you start involving others into building on your idea. They need to know its boundaries so that as they contribute their efforts, they can follow along the path you laid out. For us, our guideposts were enshrined in our company culture document, outlining the values we think are essential. As we started the hiring process, we knew the key elements we needed to include in the job description, and more importantly, the qualities we needed to screen for in interviews. And it worked. The people that were attracted to the job opening liked the values we shared. Not all of them met our criteria, but a few did. People like Daniel, who joined to lead our iOS development effort because he had already been working on an app to help people reach their time management goals. Or Micah, who joined to help with our online community effort. She was attracted to the opening because of her passion to help others reach their goals. Yes, they had to have certain technical skills, but they could apply those skills anywhere. What they wanted was to apply those skills to build on the ideas we were pursuing and for a company 
with our explicitly stated values. They knew that this would be a place where their skills would be valued and they could directly contribute to making our ideas and our products better. Change is never easy. It requires a certain mindset that embraces ambiguity and is comfortable making decisions that could be wrong. It requires a mindset that appreciates the reality that what you create today will change tomorrow. And in a new company, especially one as ambitious as the one we want to build, we knew that it would require a special type of person. Lucky for us and our customers, we found the right people who were excited about our ideas and shared our values for confronting a changing environment head on. In the next episode of The Thinker's Manifesto, we bring our journey to an end and reveal the answer to the question that started this session. What matters more? an idea, or its execution? The answer is perhaps not what you expected. I hope you will listen in. There is a raging debate among business leaders. It revolves around what's more important, an idea or its execution. On one side of the debate are people like Michael Dell, the founder of Dell Computer. He states, quote, ideas are a commodity. Execution of them is not, unquote. And thought leaders like Guy Kawasaki, who states, quote, ideas are easy. Implementation is hard. And even the great Steve Jobs said, quote, to me, Ideas are worth nothing unless executed. They are just a multiplier. Execution is worth millions. This side of the debate makes a compelling argument for the importance of execution. But there are also proponents for the inherent value of ideas themselves. President John F. Kennedy eloquently stated, quote, A man may die, nations may rise and fall, but an idea lives on. Ideas have endurance without death. Even Thomas Edison believed the more ideas you have, the better your chances of coming up with a great one. Quote, to have a great idea, have a lot of them. And finally, the great industrialist Harvey S. Firestone, founder of Firestone Tire Company, summed up his value for ideas as follows. Quote, capital isn't that important in business. Experience isn't that important. You can get both of these things. What is important is ideas, end quote. Over the past few episodes, we attempted to answer this question through the perspective of starting a company based on an idea. And through the process, we found our own answer to this debate, one that we will share in this season finale episode. Welcome to Thinker's Manifesto, a podcast series that will help you think better. I'm your host, Sean Jackson. Over the past six episodes of season two, we approach the question of what matters more, an idea or its execution, 
from the story of our journey creating a company based on an idea. We've discussed how we generated our idea, the value of the first follower, and even the experience of our first major failure and how we recovered from it. Most importantly, we've discussed how this idea and our execution of it has grown and developed based on the people and perspectives we've encountered along the way. What we haven't done yet is provide a clear understanding of what our idea is and how we are executing on it. So let's do that now. Our vision is ambitious. We want to help people become better thinkers through the tools and educational materials we create. What does that mean in practice? It starts with selling a notebook, a physical product that thinkers can use in their daily lives. As we have found, most serious thinkers spend time writing with pen and paper as they explore and record their ideas. And we want to give them a tool that they can use while doing so. But the notebook is just the start of the journey. We have a weekly email newsletter called The Thinker's Roundup that provides essays and links to help subscribers improve different elements of their thinking. Our online community, The Thinker's Workshop, is bundled with a notebook purchase so that we can build a connection with other like-minded individuals through online interactions and educational resources. And finally, we have created a new type of note-taking app that is specifically designed for how we capture and share ideas in the physical world. You see, there are a lot of different note-taking apps that are great for taking notes on your computer, but they are not optimized for the way we capture and share ideas using our phone. Our app is. In fact, we really don't even like to call it a note-taking app. It's really an app for ideas, for capturing them, organizing them, and collaborating on them. In other words, it's an app for helping ideas flourish. So as you can see, our idea for helping people improve the way they think required a number of elements that we needed to execute on. Needless to say, it has not been an easy journey. Creating a physical product that works seamlessly with our app is a huge challenge. And as I record this season finale, we're on the precipice of launching the next version of our notebook, and more importantly, our app. The next version of both products have been meticulously refined based on our own research and intuitions as well as the input we've received from customers in the Thinker's Workshop. And to be completely frank, right now, I don't know for certain if we have the right idea or the right execution for going forward. But here's what I believe. I don't think it matters, because the answer to what matters more actually has nothing to do with the idea or its execution. Episode 14, What Matters More? Throughout this season, there is a central theme that we have focused on, the value of people. It is not the individual who comes up with the idea or the person who works on it that matters. What really matters is the people who engage with the idea and work to make it real. One person's idea becomes exponentially better when the right people become engaged with the idea. It is their hard work and passion, collectively, that transforms and refines ideas to turn them into reality. Yes, individual contributions are important, but the collective effort of people will make an idea better and its execution stronger if they are aligned to the same values. In discussions of great companies, the concept of company culture often comes up. 
Culture extends throughout an organization, from helping recruit the right people to providing a guide in times of crisis. It is so important that many successful CEOs spend as much time working on company culture as they do anything else. In a global study of 7,500 business and HR leaders conducted by the Hay Group division of Corn Ferry, they find that driving cultural change ranks among the top three priorities of senior leadership. These results are not that surprising. In an excellent essay in the Harvard Business Review titled, The Leader's Guide to Corporate Culture, the authors state, quote, for better and worse, culture and leadership are inextricably linked. Founders and influential leaders often set new cultures in motion and imprint values and assumptions that persist for decades, end quote. They conclude their essay with a keen observation. Leading with culture may be among the few sources of sustainable competitive advantage left to companies today, end quote. Company culture is important because it is the shared values of the people involved that make an ideal great and its execution strong. And while company culture is important, the type of company culture matters more. 20 years ago, few people could ever have imagined that Enron, with a $70 billion market cap, would go bankrupt by 2001. And yet it did. Why? Because the senior leadership at Enron promoted a corporate culture of greed and deception, along with a win-at-all-cost attitude that led to criminal behavior in its financial reporting. Did Enron have a strong company culture? Yes, it did. Just not the type of one that most legal businesses would want to emulate. But there's a type of company culture that has proven to excel time and again, producing long-term financial benefits for owners and employees alike. In a Harvard Business Review essay by Adam Grant, author of Give and Take, he cites a meta-analysis research study from a team headed by Nathan Podsikoff. The study reviewed research on more than 3,500 business units across a variety of industries. What the researchers found was surprising. To quote Adam Grant, higher rates of giving were predictive of higher unit profitability, productivity, efficiency, and customer satisfaction along with lower cost and turnover rates. When employees act like givers, they facilitate efficient problem solving and coordination and build cohesive, supportive cultures that appeal to customers, suppliers, and top talent alike. End quote. Company cultures that promote giving, either in the form of advice, helping others, and a focus on helping the organization succeed, are the type of cultures that generate the strongest long-term benefits for themselves and their customers. But creating this type of culture is hard. It requires constant vigilance to weed out the takers and build processes that don't penalize people for making mistakes while encouraging creative ideas. It fosters a sense of community that acknowledges the contribution of the individual, both good and bad, as part of the whole. It is hard to make this happen, but it is the type of culture that we are trying to build in our startup company. And one final thought as we conclude this season of Thinker's Manifesto. In the coming weeks, we will be formally launching the latest version of our Thinker's app. I believe it to be the finest technology product I have ever had the honor of working on. Soon after, we will release the next version of our Thinker's Notebook. And all the while, we will be continuing to improve the educational material of our Thinker's Workshop. I believe that the hundreds of thousands of dollars I have invested in this effort will pay off. Or may not. 
That is the risk that I take to invest in an idea and work on its execution. But the reward of working with people like Jared, Daniel, and Micah has already paid a huge dividend. I've had the pleasure of watching how they embraced a simple vision and how they have worked to improve on the idea and its execution for thousands of customers like Patrick, Adrian, Chris, Rob, Dan, and countless others. As I end this episode, I am hopeful for the future and excited to see how our company culture evolves. After all, it will make for some great stories in the next season of Thinker's Manifesto. Thinker's Manifesto.